0: Welcome back to the Gems of History podcast. I'm your host Jacob Shop, and joining me, as always, we have the voluptuous, oh, the the muscular,
1: oh goodness, thanks, the, the Adonis himself, Evan oh. Roosh. I mean, I think that just takes the cake for best intro that we've ever had. It took me a while to get to the
0: last one because I, I couldn't think nice of the lunch. right word I was thinking of.
1: But. <laughs> you actually meant to say Madonna. Wait. <laughs> Not quite, but oh. the pop superstar right yeah pop superstar fashion icon sex symbol i don't know (laughs) i mean maybe yeah (laughs) no good to be back how are you doing today doing just well um the puppy as in case the listeners don't know if we have any new ones i do have a one-year-old puppy named mizuki uh we went to the dog park the other day and uh found out a little tidbit about this lovely girl uh She doesn't really love water being wet too much, um, except when it's full of mud. (laughs) So we were walking around, like this dog park has a lot of back, back trails, and we're walking around and I see her going up a little bit in front of me. I'm like, whatever, that's fine. She's just like path seeking, you know, and all of a sudden I see her jump and imagine just a tidal wave of mud just springing up. From this little dog jumping in this puddle. And at that moment, I wanted to just turn into a hot dog. (laughs) So that was a whole, you know, situation with, you know, a bath and and everything. And like
0: a couple days after he told me about that, I saw a picture on Twitter of a black lab Mm -hmm. jumping into a giant mud puddle. So I sent that to him immediately.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Oh, and another update. So if you remember the Attila the Hun episode, part two, when we, uh, started talking about like what my brothers would be you know competing to the death for. oh yeah 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 um yeah never got a text all right well so wow uh, <laughs> I guess then they they don't survive just put in like the saddest like violin music here like <laughs> play on the world's smallest violin <laughs> yes exactly by anyway yeah doing fine good good glad to hear it mm-hmm
0: yeah so I was gonna try and get that uh that bigger topic at least the first part of it done for this week so that we could start on that, but my body told me that I wasn't going to get that done because woke up on Monday, had like a 103 degree fever, and I didn't do much of anything this week, so that's not going to
1: happen. Sorry, folks. Yeah, it's uh, kind of hard to fight through a 103 degree fever. Yeah. Can't do much. So I was in between
0: shaking because I was freezing and then sweating a lot because I was way too warm. So that that was a lot of fun, but it wasn't COVID, which is good. So I avoided that again somehow. I've somehow avoided it all this time,
1: and honestly, same. I've gotten like I
0: feel like I've gotten everything else besides it
1: at this point, though. Right, well, fully vaxxed, fully Fully vaxxed. vaxxed.
0: (laughs) But so this week we're gonna do another kind of relaxed episode. We did some research on uh, a certain someone that. We'll talk about towards the end of the episode, but we're gonna kind of have a little discussion at the beginning here about a couple uh, a couple of things with World War II, and then talk about a lesser known World War II hero from a little country called Great Britain or the UK now. But
1: yeah, very excited for this one. I mean, everyone just loves World War II. I think if you're a history fan, there's just you kind of hand in hand have a love for World War II. And all the different stories that come out of it. And it's just the most documented war ever, yeah. I would say. Uh, so very excited for our conversation. And then just to you know, spotlight uh, Freddie Chapman, uh, Freddie Spencer Chapman, I guess I should say, who, if you remember our uh, one of our previous episodes about Leo Major, uh, this man, in, an, in a nutshell, was an unbelievable badass. Uh, he was, I mean, he was an outdoorsman. Uh, he had amazing accomplishments even before the war, and what he did during the war with just very few resources—absolutely incredible. So, really looking forward to getting into this and diving in.
0: It's funny because the war was kind of just like a a throwaway for him, like a throwaway part of his life, kind of right. at first, because he was yeah. he was doing so much other cool stuff. Yeah, and then he's just like, "Yeah, I'll join the war." Yeah, and then he just ended up being like this crazy insane man in the forest for like three years.
1: Right. This man said, I got some time on my hands. Uh I'll just literally destroy the entire Japanese infrastructure on Malaysia. So
0: Yep. But before we talk about uh Freddie Chapman, I've been reading I've been seeing on Twitter a couple times with people talking about the whole argument of did the US have to drop the atomic bombs on Japan? Was it a necessary move by the US government to do that? Or was it kind of just like a power statement? And there's been a lot of people now saying, can we stop teaching in U.S. schools that it was a necessary thing to win the war? Because it really wasn't. And so I kind of just wanted to have a little discussion kind of on that front and kind of get into a few of the details. I know we're possibly planning a whole series or maybe an episode or two on... uh, the whole bombing planning for the US in Japan towards the end of the war. I know Evan's been reading a book about that, so
1: you heard that right. So was, I'm reading a book
0: about <laughs> So we'll spare some of the details here. Mm-hmm. We'll just kind of have a little talk about it and then get into Freddie afterwards. But yeah, I found an article on the Truman Library website, and they have a bunch of cool photocopy documents of US kind of reporting after the war within the government and the military, collecting data from our own personal reconnaissance of Japan during the war, documents from Japan after the war ended. And I was reading one from July of 1946 about what was the, the structure of the Japanese government kind of like towards the end of the war. And basically, I didn't read the whole thing, but from what I did read, it said... There was one government, I believe it was called Tojo in the report, I don't know if that stands for something or if it was just like the designation they gave it, but that government towards the end of 1944 already pretty much had collapsed and was taken over by another government that they they gave the moniker of Koiso and basically said Japan knew they weren't going to win and this new government was tasked with reconsidering Japan's position and seeking more of a peaceful solution to the end of the war versus a kind of go down in a blaze of glory type ending. And basically said like they were on their way to negotiating. And then this was all, this was all before we started bombing. So I don't I just don't understand why we saw it as a necessity to just go in there and start bombing. I mean, maybe we just didn't have that intelligence that they were starting to reconsider, which mm-hmm. very well could be. But yeah, by for, by all accounts from that article I read, it just doesn't seem like it was a necessary measure. So- right.
1: I mean, to put in perspective, mid-war and this war being World War II, like the biggest war, like their entire government fell apart. Uh, this also comes off the heels of, if you remember our Battle of Midway episode. Uh, we literally intercepted Japanese communications and shot down their commanding admiral. So they did not have like established leadership uh, at the time when these negotiations came to be like started happening. Um, and it's definitely taught in united states history you know like u.s schools that you know what props to us good thing we just deleted two cities off yeah. the uh, face of the earth um it's definitely something that's very much up to debate, you know with having what is it 80 no 60 years no 80 80 years of hindsight being what it is but A lot of new reports are saying that we did not need to drop those nuclear bombs. But to your point, I do think uh, the two biggest points uh, as to why we did it past, you know, just kind of showing our guns. uh, The biggest one is I believe we were already starting to be very scared of Russia and what Russia could do. Uh, There are plenty of reports as well as I believe a quote from a actual general of the U.S. military saying, uh, as soon as we're done with World War II, we should start turning on the Russians and immediately immediately attack Russia.
0: We already knew that we were going to have to deal with them like right after the war was over.
1: Right, right. And this, in my opinion, dropping the atomic bombs was definitely a message uh, to be sent.
0: It was a statement piece.
1: Yes, absolutely. It was, you know, just our little shining achievement of yeah. <laughs> mass, a mass ver- destruction. A very
0: bright, shining achievement.
1: Right. Need to, need to wear sunglasses to see this bad boy. But uh, yeah, definitely something that's kind of. I mean, when you think about how it's taught in schools, I mean, a lot of U.S. history is very propaganda based, if you will, uh, where not the entire story is told. And yeah. that's just something that once you reach adulthood I mean, or even like college, or even, I honestly think even our high school uh, teacher did a pretty good job at being like, yeah, Merrick was kind of fucked up for that. Yeah. Um, I guess it all depends on what kind of schooling you have. But doing yeah. this
0: podcast, I've realized just how true the statement that v- history is written by the victors is. Because right. not only in this case, but I was re- or listening to something about how Julius Caesar got to be such like a big name while he was doing such terrible things to some of the people around him. And it was basically Mm -hmm. because he wrote everything, like he wrote journals and stuff, but he wrote them so grandiose about himself and then sent those out as like a newspaper pretty much so that the people would be like, wow, this guy's awesome because he was a new ruler still. He had to to like get
1: that clout. So it's crazy that this has been going on literally forever. Oh, since the dawn of time. It's very funny that the PR department was literally just Julius Caesar with with a pen. And it
0: was funny because uh the thing i was listening to was like yeah 35 or like 25% of the time he just refers to himself as i but other time, like the other 75% of the writing he refers to himself in the third person so he says like julius caesar did this
1: i'm just imagining like a general's meeting before he was like he was like julius caesar and it's like oh this this freaking guy just always speaking in the third person
0: like the Seinfeld episode, where the guy yeah. at the gym refers to himself as Jimmy, Jimmy. all the time. Yeah.
1: yeah. I actually just got done. I'm on literally the second to last episode of Seinfeld after rewatching it. Heck yeah. Wayne Knight, the actor that plays Newman, he literally came off the bench and just gave a double double every time. Dude, he is so good. Incredible actor. But anyway, not sure how we got there. Um, but off the topic of, uh, you know.
0: But I definitely think that one of the reasons. And it seems like this is kind of a prevailing theory as to why we decided to, quote unquote, go harden the paint on Japan towards the end, was because the only way we were going to accept peaceful terms with Japan was going to be if they surrendered unconditionally, and Japan wasn't ready to do that. They're they're ready to like come to peace terms, but it wasn't going to be unconditional, and the U.S. is like, ah, well. We got to figure out something to do with that then. we are
1: like, no, 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 no. We're going to take everything.
0: And most people don't know, outside of the atomic bombs, we were firebombing hell out of a lot of smaller Japanese cities, like Mm -hmm. literal ramshackle huts. Yeah, a few... I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you're good. Yeah, it's it's it was not a good period of time for us as far as, like, doing
1: very friendly things. Yeah, you have to, like... To put it in perspective, Japanese architecture was not the same as U.S. architecture, if that makes sense. Meaning, like, the way that cities were basically built. I mean, these cities have been there for thousands of years. uh, And they were basically just wood and straw. And there's actually a fabulous book called The Bomber Mafia by Malcolm Gladwell. He does a really good job explaining this. Uh, they said, or he said in reporting about one of the test bombs, cause we tested out these pyro bombs, uh, before actually going to Japan and using them, he said that the tests were, it deleted a row of houses. So imagine like 10 houses, imagine like a condo or like apartment complex. It basically deleted it in 10 minutes. Yeah. It just went up like that in flames, uh, very easy. And we dropped it during like their technical dry season, so it was very, you know, calculated uh, when we dropped those pyro bombs onto this rural village, civilians, rural villages. I yeah. guess I should uh, should say, yeah. These these people probably, you know, had no love for the war either. Yeah,
0: and they th- these pyro bombs killed, I think, almost double the amount that the nuclear bombs did. Yeah. So it's yes. It's not like we weren't already doing enough damage without the nuclear bombs.
1: Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell put it, or excuse me, he put it this way in saying that the devastation that just simple fire did, as opposed to the nuclear bombs, basically means there was no real reason for the nukes.
0: Yeah, and I think that's kind of where I stand on this, too. It's just like we... Even if we didn't drop the nukes, we did so much damage already that I think we kind of made our point. But yeah, I think what you said about Russia is really just the truth Mm -hmm. is that we wanted to show Russia that we know you guys have nukes, so do we, and we're going to prove that we're willing to use ours. And that's what we did. We just did it on a country that was already kind of at a standstill with itself. So, and
1: we did it on cities that really didn't have any military yeah, anything. I don't think there were any military factories. And to back up even more the US with World War II, we approached bombing completely different uh where the UK and our allies were just carpet bombing everything typically. Um for the most part in the war in Europe, we only targeted actual factories and uh supply routes and supply chain things but then with uh little old japan (laughs) you're like enough of that this is taking too long yeah and uh yeah dropped three of the most devastating bombs i think of all time like the one pyro bomb uh i forget which city it is uh so i do apologize but yeah double what the nukes did
0: yeah so in in the end yeah i I think it's definitely a fair question to say maybe we should change how we're teaching this to to kids in the fact that we're we are kind of propping up the fact that we did it for a good reason. Right. So I don't know. It's just something to think about whether you think that was necessary or not. We'd like to hear what you guys think. If yeah. you guys have a different opinion, let us know. Yeah. yeah. And then it's always nice to have a little counterpoint to something so that we can kind of have a little intellectual Thought exercise
1: with it, but yeah, Uh, it's definitely just like the practice of United States schools to never put the blame like on America, and that's just very, very much seen in literally every single thing that we did, even like the Trail of Tears. Yeah, that's like pretty much that's like a paragraph, and not even a paragraph, that's like a bold letter, yeah, or a bold word. Um, which is very different because, for example, Germany and the Holocaust, uh, they're That's very well present in their uh, curriculum.
0: Oh, and they keep the, they have field trips to the concentration
1: camps. Yeah. Like they, I guess I shouldn't say they don't shy away. Well, uh, yeah, they don't shy away from it. They acknowledge, like, hey, that was pretty messed up.
0: We can't let this happen again.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's just very, I don't know. I mean, personally, uh, when I, when I was taught, yeah, we dropped nukes uh, on, on these civilian towns, like as a high schooler, I thought, well, that was kind of messed up. May not have needed to do that. But I mean, when you're teaching it to high schoolers and teenagers, you know, it's and saying we did nothing wrong. I think there's a lot of danger in yeah. that uh, because people, I mean, most people don't have our love of history and don't really are going to revisit like articles that you said from the Truman Library. To actually, get to the bottom of it. Yeah. Whereas they'll just accept, yep, U.S. great Uncle Sam, guitar riff, like Bald USA, Eagle. Hell yeah. U.S.A. There you go.
0: Yeah. So it's an interesting thing to think about and just kind of like goes over the points. Like you said, like Trail of Tears. That's something that no one talks about. Manifest and- Destiny
1: was. Oh, a positive thing that we're was. We're gonna taught?
0: get a lot into Manifest Destiny coming oh, up it, here soon. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: Ooh, oh goody. So yeah, it <laughs> America's greatest hits. <laughs>
0: I, a little off topic, but kinda on the topic of the Trail of Tears and Manifest Destiny. I watched War of the Worlds last night for the first time in like ten years.
1: Incredible movie.
0: Yeah, it doesn't hold up as well as I'd hoped. Oh, but it's no, not, really? not bad. Mm-hmm. But it's it's got questionable moments. But anyways...
1: I guess I haven't seen it in probably since its released. Oh, so. yeah. It,
0: it's been at least 10 years since I've seen that movie. But anyways, I just was thinking the whole time towards the end when it, when they're dying from disease and stuff, I was just mm-hmm. like, man, we just like Native American our way through these aliens again like we <laughs> right. did in the U... like the Settlers did in the Old right. West. I was <laughs> like, man, we have a real theme going on here. Honestly,
1: germs are just... The biggest villains, and also sometimes when it comes to fighting off alien invasions, yeah, are it, they heroes? I guess in this case,
0: it's a good thing. But technically, the alien ships were underground first, so I mean they were here first. But I don't
1: know if they, how did they explain that? Really, I've I completely forgot a lot about that movie. Wow! All I remember is just Tom Cruise having to help out. I think it's like Dakota Fanning.
0: Oh, like the fir- There's probably a good. Ten to fifteen minute section of that movie that's just him running and hiding behind a new car. Every yeah, day. yeah.
1: I, I was in like a lot of like sponsored cars too. Like probably, I just remember like probably. a brand new like 06 Chevy yeah. or something and, like and, that.
0: And then there's literally twenty five percent of the movies just them in a basement.
1: <laughs> that's right. And like the ten. Wow, that movie kind of does suck. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it's not. It's not bad, <laughs> but it's just like. Man, this movie did not
0: hold up as well as I wanted it to.
1: Right. That is funny, just what movies hold up and which ones don't. Like, it's the anniversary of Gladiator's release. Oh, dude. That Today, movie is so good. It's better than, I think, any new movie I've seen in the last three to four years. Oh, uh, Action movie, that is, I guess.
0: Russell Crowe, right? Yep. Yeah, he puts on a stellar performance in that movie.
1: Honestly, that entire cast just like had a double-double. I'm just referring to things in basketball terms now. (laughs) I was going to say, that's the
0: second double-double reference we've had. Right, yeah. (laughs) And
1: Russell Crowe went off for like a 50-burger, like a (laughs) 50-piece. But it didn't work, that's for sure.
0: But anyways, back on the topic of World War II, Evan found this (laughs) this man that we're going to talk about for the rest of the episode, a man named Freddie Spencer Chapman. Since, yes,
1: Freddie Spencer Chapman. I don't uh,
0: know how Heaven found this guy, but...
1: So, three weeks ago, I typed in, I forget which, I, I think it was like when I was trying to decide which topic I wanted to do for that week, and I landed on Attila the Hun, but my first initial Google search was badasses of history, and... That's fair. Like, Of course, like Leo Major popped up, uh, a couple other people popped up, but this guy stood out to me. In particular, just because he's, so Freddie Spencer Chapman is just one of England's most decorated soldiers, one of the most technically renowned soldiers, but he's completely overshadowed by Lawrence of Arabia. Now, are you familiar with Lawrence? He was more, Lawrence of Arabia, just for people that don't know, uh, he was a, <clears throat> a, he basically waged a guerrilla war with the ottoman empire uh, in world war one where he used hit and run tactics he used uh like saboteur tactics basically something completely different than what was really done in traditional wars up until this point point. and he basically just spread havoc across the entire ottoman empire uh, particularly in the middle east but he's basically known as that kind of he's a romanticized hero uh for england for the uk um for great britain i guess at the time um but this man uh freddy spencer chapman kind of did a lot of the same activity but just in world war ii
0: it is kind of crazy that that was such a like an oddball thing to do even in world war one but you don't really think about that that's only like 40 to 50 years after the american civil war where we were still fighting in lines right so <laughs> it's not it it wasn't that far off between then and world war one
1: Yo, war got nuts. Very like, fast. The weapons got nuts so fast after the Civil War.
0: Because we had they had like a primitive Gatlin gun for the Civil War, yeah. but that was like the highest of tech at the time. And then fifty years later we just got tanks.
1: We got tanks and like howitzer bombs, and then we were dropping bombs from the sky yeah. in less than fifty years. And a hundred years before the Civil War, we were using swords. Yeah. So it's
0: crazy that Lawrence of Arabia was the guy doing crazy stuff, just doing, like, guerrilla warfare tactics.
1: Freddie Spencer Chapman, uh, he was an orphan uh, who overcame and accomplished just incredible things, uh, both in his personal life, so outside of his military presence, as well as his military career, as being one of the most decorated soldiers uh, from, from England. And what I think, just kind of most importantly, He wrote every single day in his journal. Like he had a daily journal, so he recorded all this uh, kind of amazing work that he did. Uh, And the accounts that he gives are just absolutely spectacular. And from this journal and his, uh, just before he passed away, um, he wrote, or he, I shouldn't say, he directly wrote, but he partnered with a publisher and wrote eight different books. Uh, because he was just an incredible outdoorsman, incredible soldier, and incredible teacher. So he had such a huge impact on not only the military, but also in academics. So a really fascinating guy.
0: Yeah, and I think there's another book that was written by a secondhand guy. I don't remember mm-hmm. his name, but yeah, there's another one that's taken like another look at his life and gone through a lot of the journals and stuff that he wrote and wrote another book about him. So there's plenty of like, first-hand material, but online
1: sources are pretty scarce. Oh, yeah. We had such a hard time, other than the article that I randomly found and sent to you. Yeah. Uh, we had such a, a hard time trying to find stuff.
0: Yeah, there's not a single YouTube video about him. There's maybe no. maybe like...
1: That could be our intro to YouTube. Yeah,
0: maybe. maybe. <laughs> there's like maybe 10 good articles online that mm-hmm. I found, but they all kind of are copy and paste versions of each other aside oh, from right. like little sections here and there that have a little... New fact in it, but mm-hmm. yeah, I was, I was trying to find stuff on this guy. I'm like, where it, how the hell do you even know about this dude? I know, right?
1: <laughs> but uh, since we're just talking about uh, my sources for good old Freddie, came from osclub.sedbergschool.org, uh, which is actually one of the schools that Freddie attended. Uh, then also, my secondary source was militaryhistory.fandom.com.
0: Yeah, I found a Guardian article that did a good job covering them too, so shout out to the Guardian.
1: But and then finally, uh we also have www.adventurejournal.com.
0: That one's a really good one. That's probably the most comprehensive one.
1: Yeah, if you want to check our work, which uh please don't. <laughs> uh, I would definitely go to the Adventure Journal one. Uh they do a great job of laying out a very succinct timeline, I would say, and just going over you know, all the key key things. Yeah. But uh, Freddie's early life, so I mentioned he was an orphan. Uh, both of his parents died while he was still a very, very young child. Uh, his mother, Winifred, uh, died. <laughs> or Winnie. It
0: just makes me think of the Lego movie
1: where Batman's talking about not having parents. No parents. Darkness. <laughs> no parents. No parents. <laughs> <laughs> the Lego movie slaps. It's so good. I enjoyed that far too much as an adult. But uh, his mother died shortly after his birth in London, and then his father... Frank Spencer Chapman was actually killed at the Battle of Ypres, uh, which was one of the more famous World War I battles, which saw the deaths of a whole bunch of people.
0: And I saw in a couple articles that it was that battle, and I saw in a couple other articles that it was the Battle of the Somme. So I don't oh, know. Oh, really? I don't well, know which. They, is...
1: Those two battles, if I'm not mistaken, happened kind of like right next to yeah, each other. Yeah. So either one's
0: probably right. Right. But uh, before he died in the battle, he pretty much shipped his sons off to like this random clergyman and then moved to Canada <laughs> and then, so Freddie uh, everyone said like Freddie didn't address him as dad. he He addressed him as like Mr. Chapman and stuff. Mm-hmm. So he's like, "I didn't really have a dad even before you died <laughs> right
1: <laughs> but uh yeah, like you mentioned, after the passing, Freddie and his brother older brother Robert were looked. After by an elderly clergyman and his wife at the village of Cartmel. Uh, Chapman, just from the very get-go, from the very early life, um, or from the very start of his life, words are hard today, uh, he expressed and developed an extreme interest in nature and the outdoors. So, as a boy, and these are just his own words, uh, first, a mad keen butterfly collector, and then a wildflower enthusiast, and at last, a birdwatcher. So he just recounts his time spent as a boy, and his early life just constantly being outdoors and wanting to be in nature and basically being a birdwatcher. He had such a respect for different animals and just for the outdoors as a whole. Um, At the age of eight, Freeman was then sent to a private school uh, where the headmaster who was, quote, a man of infinite kindness and understanding, was actually a very enthusiastic entomologist. And Freddy left this school with a great knowledge of gardening and even more of an enthusiasm for just the natural history uh, of just environments and just plants and animals around him.
0: Big Earth Day guy.
1: Huge Earth Day. (laughs) I can't imagine if he was still alive and he would just see like The random junk that's all over the place probably wouldn't be too happy about it he would be so pissed but no one tell him about the coral reef the grand coral or great coral great berry reef uh when chavin was 14 he was then sent to sedberg school in yorkshire uh he actually did not really excel in traditional school settings so he wasn't doing very great at the actual subjects. so Not a math guy, not really like a big English grammar guy. Uh, And he's quoted saying that he loathed the monotonous bell regulated routine of school life and considered lessons as, I quote, things to be avoided by all possible means, fair or foul. Yep. And organized games were a waste of a fine afternoon. So he just straight up did not like school. He did not like organized team activities. He despised cricket. Like, absolutely, like, hate, 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 double hate, loathe entirely. He had
0: a, this thing where he, like, to test how tough he was, so he had other kids take cricket bats and hit him on the head as hard <laughs> as they could so he could see if he could take it.
1: That's the ultimate guys being dudes. Yeah, I was like, like all right, you like, do you, Freddy. Yeah, like, punch me in the face just so I know what it, what it, what's like the live. Like, what's... <laughs> now we got concussion protocol. All right. right, now kids are soft with... Oh, my head hurts.
0: Thanks, Roger Goodell.
1: (laughs) But uh, the headmaster actually at this new school at the Sedberg School in Yorkshire, he saw that Freddie basically had no care for this uh, and was very flexible with him, which you don't really think about when you think about traditional private schools. Uh, He basically said to Freddie, you don't have to do any of the organized sports stuff. You do have to go to school. That's why you're here. But basically, as long as you don't waste your time during those free periods, I mean, go into your thing. And apparently Chapman just spent all of his time in nature.
0: Yeah, I think it was from 1 p.m. to 7 p.m. He said he had free time to go roam around. Mm -hmm. So he had six hours to go as far as he could and make it back in time, obviously. But he said he had plenty of room to explore in that time period. So he got a lot of experience out in nature doing whatever he wanted, climbing and Checking out new areas and whatever.
1: I bet he would have been an incredible nature YouTuber if he was born oh, today. Yeah. He would just be bear grills. He would put bear grills in a body bag. He would
0: be the most wholesome content for nature. On Absolutely, YouTube. that'd be the best.
1: Um, after the Sedbergh School, uh, Chapman did win a full scholarship to St John's College, uh, as well as the uni- or excuse me, St John's College uh, at the University of Cambridge. Uh, In 1926, where he finally took a liking to history, shout out our guy,
0: uh,
1: and English. And it's there that he developed, truly developed, his passion for adventure. And by the end of his university terms, he had already completed several overseas excursions, including a climbing expedition in the Alps and a journey to Iceland to study plant and bird life. Uh, And it was here that he met and was formally inspired by the great mountaineer Jeffrey Winthrop Young and then joined the Cambridge Mountaineering Club so dude just loves being outside can't blame him Uh, in 1930 uh, Chapman was then on an expedition and was the official ski expert and naturalist expert uh, for the British Arctic Air Route Expedition and then uh, after that the subsequent Greenland expedition in 1932 and 1933. It's said, and this is part of what he wrote in his journal, uh, that he experienced cold of such intensity that he lost all his finger and toenails during these expeditions. He just suffered through all of that cold. And he even uh, spent 20 hours in a storm at sea in a kayak.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Made out of seal skin.
1: Yes. <laughs> He said that he only saved himself uh, by holding onto the handles of his dog sled, which were on the kayak. Literally insane. Like, I would get so seasick just being on a boat. Yeah. And this man was just 20 hours in a storm in the Arctic in a kayak. Absolutely insane. He later led a three-man team across the desolate Greenland ice cap. Uh, Being the first European to do this. Uh, since the original uh, man that did this, and his name was Nansen, uh, he was very fluent in Inuit and was an able kayaker and dog sledger, which again, only way he survived the storm. Uh, He was awarded the Polar Medal for his participation in these expeditions, and he fathered a son, actually, by an Inuit girl, but the child died a year later.
0: One of the articles that I read, I think it was the Guardian article was like, yeah, this guy wasn't very sentimental cuz he killed a polar bear and immediately cut out its heart and ate it. And then what? I, and then and they're like, yeah, that was one thing he did. And then another thing he did was one of his dogs on his sled team had some puppies and he immediately fed them to the other sled dogs to give them food. I was like, what the hell?
1: We're canceling this episode. We're we're done. We're done. Nope. Shut down the computers. <laughs> I absolutely hate this guy so much now. So
0: he he just had like no attachment to things, apparently.
1: Yeah, he definitely uh did not care much for you know sentimental things. No, That's not really. Sure. In nineteen thirty-five he then went to Lapland and had an exciting expedition on skis with a reindeer called Isaac. <laughs> Which, like you mentioned, uh, not a very sentimental guy. He later sold this reindeer to a butcher. Mm -hmm. Nice. (laughs) So as much as he loved animals, apparently he just hated getting close with them. Yeah, apparently. Uh, Early in 1936, he then joined the Himalayan Climbing Expedition. Uh, He was not only a keen mountaineer at this time, but studied the history of mountaineering. Uh, He enjoyed the difficult climbs and met... Basil Gould, the political officer for Sikkim, Bhutan, and Tibet. So now he's starting to get political connections through this just love of mountaineering. Gould invited uh, Freddie to be his private secretary on his political mission from July 1936 to February 1937 to persuade the Pankin Lama to return from China and establish permanent British representation in Lhasa. So, basically, he's starting to get very involved in politics, as well as just leading political leaders to basically get to these more remote and isolated tribes uh, to basically just negotiate with them. Spencer struggled to learn Tibetan, uh, and, but, however, did learn it well enough to converse. Uh, he was then involved in different cipher work, uh, kept a meteorological log... Pressed six hundred plants, dried seeds, and made notes on bird life. So a lot of notes and information that we have about uh, nature in this area actually comes from Freddie Chapman.
0: It's kind of it's got to be interesting when this guy's trying to persuade a head of state or like a head of like <laughs> a group to try and come with him. Mm-hmm. And I'm just imagining him like walking up and then just like punching through the side of like a a camel or something and just ripping its heart out and then and eating starting it. to eat it. And then it's just like, don't come with
1: me. Yeah. And they're like, I, I guess I have to. <laughs> right. He actually just takes one of the humps off a camel's back and starts like drinking the water yeah. in there. Oh, man. Uh, he, during this entire time, he also kept a diary of events and took a lot of photographs that were sent to India on a weekly basis. Uh, he was allowed to wander and uh, did so and very in a, in a very unshepherd and unguided way uh, into the middle of Tibet and around what the Tibetans considered the holy city. And that's actually the name of one of his books where he recounts all of this as well as his adventures um, in this holy city. And it's just a title very on the head. It's just known as the holy city. Uh, after his return from this expedition, Chapman, Chapman obtained permission to lead a five man expedition from Sikkim to the holy mountain oh man and here's the weekly uh how do i pronounce this
0: when i was reading through this like there's a lot of names in this that are probably going to be kind of hard to pronounce
1: oh this isn't so bad uh so from Sikkim to the holy mountain chomolari am i just smarter with age uh which the british group had passed on the way from Sikkim to tibet uh, at their previous expedition chapman and sherpa pasang dawa lama succeeded to become the first ever mountaineers to climb The 7,314 meter high peak, which they finally reached from the Bhutanese side after finding the route from the Tibetan side impassable. And the mountain would not be climbed again until 1970, so a full 34 years later. Until yeah. someone else even attempted, well, not attempted it, actually reached the top of this mountain.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure they had a pretty rough time on the way back down, too. Like, oh like boy. he <laughs> fell into like a 30 foot crevice and had to yep. get out. And it took, I think it, they said that he had to pretty much dig stairs into the side of it so that he could get back out. And it took him like four or six hours to get out of a 30 foot hole.
1: Right. These journeys were intense. Yeah. Like, you have to just, again, I say to put in perspective a lot but to put in perspective uh that's 30 feet of having to climb through snow your footing is on ice like there's no real grip yeah so it's just extremely tough um but yeah uh in 1938 then uh spencer spencer taught spencer in 1930 (laughs) this is the first time i've seen him referred to by his male name okay in 1938, Freddie then taught at the Gordonston School, where, fun fact, Prince Philip was actually one of his pupils. Nice, that old old man, <laughs> old bag, old literally <laughs> looks like a bag. Uh, however, during this time, you know, war was definitely on the horizon. Uh, World War Two was definitely on the horizon, and. He was commissioned into the seaforth highlanders as a lieutenant on june 6th 1939 and he was chosen to train australian and new zealand forces in guerrilla warfare so a little context there when japan started wildin for lack of a better way to put it uh, they attacked the surrounding areas of malaysia all the different pacific islands and were headed towards Australia and New Zealand, which at the time were British colonies. And so, Freddie was chosen to teach these troops how to do guerrilla warfare, because he was just so knowledgeable about getting into places where he probably shouldn't have been, and just, like, traversing difficult terrains. Uh, During the Japanese invasion of Singapore, the then-Captain Chapman... Took part in a undercover raid across the Parak River in support of the counter-invasion forces, so this is where he starts entering the war and really starts you know, causing a causing a ruckus for the Japanese forces. To yeah, say.
0: he's a thorn on the Japanese side for sure. Right. <laughs> uh,
1: however, uh, military leaders and strategists would not allow preparations to be made when Singapore would eventually fall. Because they thought that there was just no possible way that Singapore, which again was a British colony, could be invaded and lost. But following the Japanese invasion, Captain Chapman formed a commando group as a stay behind party made up of a couple of British soldiers, British soldiers, uh, but primarily made from sympathetic guerrillas from Malay. Chinese and Indian volunteers,
0: not like actual gorilla gorillas, but like Harambes, volunteer fighters. Yeah,
1: no. <laughs> <laughs> no, we didn't. Yeah, no, no gorillas were shot during World War II. I'm pretty sure that only happens in Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> this guy reminds
0: me of Hiro Onoda, that Japanese mm-hmm. soldier who got stuck absolutely on, stuck on the island and didn't know the war ended.
1: Yes, hundred percent. It's a very similar tale to that. Oh, hundred 100%. Just guys back behind enemy lines and doing the most that they can with very limited resources. During the next three years, Freddy conducted a guerrilla war behind enemy lines. And as he says, and I quote here, three of us managed to wreck seven trains to cut the railway in about 60 different places, including demolishing 15 bridges. And they damaged or destroyed 40 motor vehicles. Yeah. Not to mention hundreds of Japanese killed. uh, Japanese enemy forces, invasion forces killed. So this man in three years just did the most.
0: Yeah, they used a bunch of grenades Mm -hmm. and like plastic explosives inside of bamboo. And that was the main way that they were destroying stuff. And eventually they're just like, we don't have enough supplies to keep doing this. Yeah. <laughs> and there's just three of us pretty much. So,
1: Right, right. And it's in early 1942 where he actually did, like you mentioned, run out of supplies. Uh, and they, that, I mean, these supplies were hidden for other stay-behind parties such as his team, but they were just having so much success that, and also there just weren't other stay-behind teams, uh, that he just used it all yeah. to great effect. Chapman and his team then tried to escape from the area, but had to hide from the Japanese in the Malayan jungle with the help of the Chinese communists, led by Chen Peng, who lived in guerrilla camps in the jungle, waging war with the Japanese.
0: The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right. Hey. Yeah. That
1: was the last time the British or the West uh, ever hung out with the com- with communists. Communist Chinese. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, However, due to the bad conditions of the jungle and also due to Japanese attacks, he gradually lost all of his team members through either disease or gunfire and was completely cut off. So, Chapman's kind of a one-man wrecking crew at this point. And for more than one and a half years, he had to live in jungle camps with Chinese communist guerrillas wherever he could find them and travel long distances through dense and difficult jungles, often suffering high fevers caused by malaria. Yeah, this
0: dude had like seven different ailments that all sound absolutely terrible at the yeah. same
1: time. Yeah. <laughs> how like how do you not die? Yeah, I always say that I'm constantly sick and complaining about it. This man was constantly sick with malaria yeah. and other just insane tropical diseases. I had
0: a fever for 2 days and I acted like I was dying. <laughs>
1: right? <laughs> the classic man cold. Yeah, literally. <laughs> well, yours wasn't a man cold, but just yeah. Uh, in the late 19 or in late 1943, he finally reestablished contact with the British and then two other Britons actually joined him, uh, from force 136, which was a different stay behind party. He was then, uh, captured twice during this time. And this is just an absolutely incredible story. So they were on a, I believe it was a scouting mission, if I'm not mistaken, and they ran into some Chinese marauders, basically Chinese bandits, who caught them and then confiscated their weapons and were going to hold them as prisoner and for ransom. Uh, but on the, or during one of the nights where they were imprisoned, Freddy actually doped his guards using a lethal dose of morphia in their cups of coffee. So this man is also just poisoning people (laughs) from behind the lines. It's not even, it's just like Chinese bandits. Yeah. Uh, having, he then, uh, walked out of the camp, uh, successfully exited the camp. However, he inadvertently walked right into a Japanese camp and became surrounded by hundreds of soldiers. However, that evening he eventually managed to evade the sentries and was able to escape.
0: And this the Japanese captures insane too, because he told the uh the commanding Japanese officer that he used to go bird watching with the Prince of Japan. Yeah, and, and they're just like, oh man, this guy is so charming. We're not gonna <laughs> tie you up. Don't worry. I wish I had some whiskey. Literally said, I wish I had some whiskey I could give you, and they didn't tie his feet. So, so he's just like, well, I'm going to get the hell out
1: of here tonight then. You're right. It's like, wow, they are very trusting. While he has malaria. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And then that after- bog fever
0: or whatever the hell they call it.
1: That sounds so gross. Yeah, just, I, sorry, I can't come out tonight. I have a bad case of bog fever. He's
0: got like seven different things that just sound terrible.
1: Right. Uh, for the next six days then, after he escaped the Japanese camp, he raced barefoot to confuse any potential trackers. Now, keep in mind, he's also sick during this time, and he's racing barefoot for six days. In a jungle. In a jungle. <laughs> like, where you could just step on anything and basically have your foot pierced right through. Yeah. Um. Just speaking of the jungle, uh, Freddy was just very respecting i would say of the jungle because he was just a huge nature guy uh the japanese really weren't like the only enemy so the jungle was a source of like we mentioned intense injury and illness and as a result freddie suffered from constant sickness and at one point actually spent two weeks in a semi-coma suf- suffering from tick typhus blackwater fever that one That's the one. Pneumonia, yeah. (laughs)
0: Blackwater fever. What is that? That
1: either sounds like a killer country band. Yeah, honestly. Or not even a country band, like a. uh, Like Trampled by Turtles. I forget what that genre of music is.
0: It's like a fiddle. Yo, yeah, there's such a
1: there's such a fiddle in this band. Are you kidding?
0: But yeah, he had there's 17 days where he just didn't write in his journal. He's just like, well, I guess I was in a coma for 17 days, right? Yeah, <laughs> he picked up
1: his book and saw, wow, this is a little uh, little light on reading. Yeah, uh, he was, despite like all these different difficulties and sicknesses, he was very determined to fight on, and he always said he that he attributed his survival to his basic rule of. And I quote here, the jungle is neutral, meaning, which was also one of the titles of one of his books, fascinating enough. But his basic view was that one should view the surroundings as neither good nor bad. And it was actually the role of the survivalist to expect nothing uh, except the dangers and the bounties of the jungle uh, as a natural course of danger.
0: There was a quote that I saw that he was inspired by. I think it was from Hamlet. And I'm not, I don't have the exact quote in front of me. It was in one of the articles. I don't remember which one. But it was something along the lines of nothing is good or evil unless man thinks it so. Or something like that. And he used that as like one of his life mottos. So he always viewed, especially nature, as just being its own entity and it wasn't Inherently good or inherently bad, just depending on what you viewed it as.
1: Right, so. all right, right. So during this entire you know, three-year, four-year, actually like five-year, uh, sorry, run of basically sabotaging uh, Japanese lines, uh, communication with the outside world was extremely poor. And a lot of what Freddie actually learned about the status of the war, so of Europe, uh, surrounding areas, areas of Burma and Australia, was through falsified Japanese propaganda that he would pick up, uh, which definitely added to his sense of isolation. But yet he still had the strength of mind and resilience to carry on his mission, uh, which is absolutely insane. Uh, you know, just seeing different propaganda pieces of our country or the his country, excuse me, uh, or just his one of his colonies was getting destroyed like a propaganda piece being like hey australia just belongs to japan now you know stuff like that um but finally with the help of the malayan chinese communists they managed to repair a radio with spare parts collected uh from the communist guerrillas and could finally contact their headquarters in colombo and organize reinforcements and supplies via parachute drops into the jungle and on may 13th 1945 freddie was finally picked up by the submarine hms statesman and taken to ceylon by this time he was marked missing presumed dead like oh, the right official hi- i'm right here <laughs> i'm not dead he just turns around and it's like do you not see the entire japanese camp on fire like that was <laughs> me <laughs> what do you mean dead <laughs> Freddie was then promoted to Colonel Chapman and was appointed to the Distinguished Service Order. A bar followed in 1946, and a bar is just another term for an extremely high award for military bravery as well as just military actions for the UK. Field Marshal Earl Wavell wrote, Colonel Chapman has never received the publicity and fame that were his predecessor's lots. Meaning, or he's referring to T. Lawrence or Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, but for sheer courage and endurance, physical and mental, the two men stand together as that of examples of what toughness the body will find if the spirit within it is tough. And as very worthy representatives of our national capacity for individual enterprise, which it is hoped that even the modern craze For regulating our lives in every detail will never stifle. So basically, the I believe it's technically like his superior officer wrote just amazing words about about this man, about Freddie Chapman, and even pointed out that he gets completely overshadowed by Lawrence of Arabia, but these two men are just such amazing examples of what it means to push through adversity. He was kept alive by the birds. By the (laughs) After the war, uh, Chapman was asked to form a school in Germany, actually, uh, for the sons and daughters of British forces uh, and the control commission civilians, uh, which were residents in the British zone of occupied Germany. So if you remember, post-World War II, the Allied forces split up Germany, uh, with Russia taking the east and the other Allied powers taking the west.
0: The Berlin Wall.
1: And the good old Berlin Wall. <laughs> uh, this school, the King Alfred School, uh, was designed for children 11 to 18 years of age and actually used the German naval base at Plan in Schleswig Holstein, where Admiral Donitz had resided during the last day of World <laughs> War II.
0: I think it's Dennitz. <laughs> I don't think it's donuts. <laughs>
1: Well, the spelling confused me. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. So uh, I think
0: we've talked about hit I think we talked about we have, that guy yeah. in the, the Hollow Earth episode of all things. Yes, we did. <laughs> now that you
1: say that, we absolutely did. Yeah. He
0: was part of that team that was supposed to find like a Hitler's Paradise Island or something.
1: I can't imagine what that island would look like. <laughs> no idea. Uh Chapman as the headmaster set up the school, organized the teachers arranged for alterations to allow both boys and girls to attend. And then, in 1948, he introduced 400 young boys and girls into what was possibly the first successful, comprehensive, co-educational boarding school in the world.
0: Progressive.
1: Not too shabby. His understanding of the requirements of young people were the guiding influence when he was setting up the school. And it was a first-class success, which lasted for 11 years. And the reason why it lasted 11 years is because we, you know, Berlin Wall eventually came down. Yeah. We gave Germany their country back. The guy
0: that hates school set up a school nice.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, very... Very funny.
0: He was like, after almost dying like 17 times in the forests, I think, I think I understand that school is important. Right, yeah,
1: he's like, stay in school, kids. You don't want to be doing what I was doing. Yeah. You don't want to have black water fever. Whatever that is. Uh, he was relieved uh, after the successful commencement, so after the 11 years, uh, at which time he continued in educational work as headmaster of St. Andrew's College, which is an extremely Prestigious school in South Africa, and then warden of Wantage Hall at the University of Reading.
0: Yeah, he left left South Africa during apartheid because he did not like what was happening there. Right. Yeah, he got out of there. <laughs> yeah, for good reason. I'd stay.
1: Right. Chapman suffered, however, just from his many explor- explorations as well as his time in the military service from frequent and very severe back pain as well as recurring stomach pain and headaches. And then, unfortunately, one day on August 8th, 1971, Freddie Chapman committed suicide in his study, leaving a note to his wife reading, and I quote, I don't want you to have to nurse an invalid for the rest of my life.
0: Yeah, it's sad, but I just think that all of those ailments that he suffered from were just long-term effects of everything that he had to deal with physically in the forest all of those different diseases that he contracted throughout his time in mm-hmm. the forest or in the in the jungle and a lot of those types of things if you have them long enough can affect your like mental state too so yeah, i think eventually the just kind of the depression and everything that he went through mm-hmm. got to him
1: Yeah, I mean, he definitely saw some stuff one year uh, behind Emmy lines for six years. And yeah, he, uh, just all the ailments, like you mentioned, just kind of finally caught up with him.
0: And there was not much mental health support for soldiers at this point in time. Oh,
1: yeah, the mental health process was be a man. (laughs)
0: Yeah, go get some
1: drinks. Right. Uh, so this is actually an excerpt from one of the books, uh, which was written by, excuse me, this quote that I'm about to read was written by, uh, one of Chapman's very close friends. Uh, and I quote here, uh, it was a last, and this isn't referring to, uh, or this is just post funeral, um, when they found out that he committed suicide and They put it as, it was a last sacrifice of a courageous and utterly English hero, a man who gave every ounce of his mental and physical strength to the cause he believed in, whose extraordinary bravery and tenacity were an inspiration to all who observed him. Despite leading such an extraordinary life, Chapman still felt unfulfilled. For someone who had always sought to experience the fullness of life, and the inner satisfaction that comes from facing and overcoming danger, old age offered few pleasures. Basically, this friend is saying that he had an incredible life, but when you, you know, pile on all those illnesses, as well as, again, just mental illnesses, um, he saw the prospect of growing old uh, as just it wasn't for him. He didn't want to do that. Uh, And he didn't want his wife to have to take care of him as well. Um,
0: I also think that this is where that lack of sentimentality comes in as well. Just because in his eyes, it probably didn't mean as much to do something like this. Mm -hmm. Whereas he wasn't really thinking about, well, now my wife's going to be alone. And all these people that care about me aren't going to have me around anymore. So I think it was just, a combination of a lot of things throughout his life that Mm -hmm. led up to this. And plus he probably couldn't go out and enjoy nature the same way he did before. Oh,
1: right. Literally the last person that would want to be just coddled up in a, in a home. Um, But to just wrap up uh, old Freddie Chapman, uh, he was an extraordinary man who led an extraordinary life. And although he himself uh, at the end of his life felt very fulfilled, unfulfilled, excuse me, He exemplified the spirit, the spirit of mental toughness and resilience combined with a clear sense of duty and adventure. He said that the state of mind was of the utmost importance to ensure that the physical health of body and the will to live were reinforced on a daily basis. So, thus ends the story of Freddie Chapman, adventurer, botanist, killed two dudes with by just... Craying a potion.
0: Bird watching badass. Bird watching
1: badass. There it is. I think
0: that's the best way to sum it up.
1: (laughs) Man, I mean, just the episode title writes itself. (laughs) can't
0: get much better than that.
1: Right, right, right. But yeah, I hope you all enjoyed the the story of Freddy. Um, I definitely enjoyed uh, researching him until I found out during the episode that, you know, he apparently just fed puppies. I don't. Yeah. Puppies.
0: I only saw that. In the That's th- tough. It's That's just tough. in the Guardian article I saw that. So, and you let. Me- <laughs> I kind of wish I didn't see it, but
1: <laughs> and you let me tell my dog story to start. The- <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: but the uh, the point that he made at the end about how uh, keeping a good attitude or like having a positive outlook is good for physical health is like, extremely true because mm-hmm. I know. And this is a huge thing for people our age, because everyone's stressed as fuck, is that you're going to get a lot more sick a lot more easily if you're just stressing out all the time, which I can't blame you if you are. I mean, we're going through 5 to 25 to 200 years of our government constantly failing us, and things go into shit and then we just got out of a huge pandemic so everything's kind of a mess world war
1: three might be right around the corner
0: so like we've talked about before if you're struggling mentally go seek out some help somewhere Mm -hmm. do some some video therapy counseling sessions or if you have like a actual therapist or counselor that you can go see go talk to him talk to a friend talk to anyone get that mental health in check so that your body stays healthy too
1: absolutely very important Very important. Couldn't agree more.
0: But, okay, I said this last week, but actually, the next episode will be the start of a a bigger series. (laughs) Finally getting to it. If I don't get physically ill again and not have the energy to do anything. But we will do that next week and you'll hear a lot more sad stuff.
1: Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Keep gems well, of history where we keep it sad
0: yeah welcome to the gems of history S- podcast all right. the sad stuff
1: right sad boy summer <laughs>
0: but until then evan you want to tell them where they can find us on social media
1: yes you can find us on instagram at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast you can then find us on twitter at gems underscore history you can find jacob on twitter at jacob from wisco and then myself at Evskis. And then finally, you can find us on TikTok at Gems of History Pod.
0: Yeah. And if you have any opinions on what we talked about kind of at the beginning with the whole us dropping the nukes thing, and you want to let us know what your perspective is on that whole thing, you can reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, let us know. Or you can email us. Got an email, gems of history podcast at gmail.com. If you want to send us a longer, longer form message about what you think. But yeah, mm-hmm. we'd love to hear from you guys, get some different opinions. So, until next week, when we're going to bring you some sad news about some old-timey people, we're going to the Wild West. K-O! (laughs) Time to get some gold! (laughs) But we'll be back with that next time. Until then, everyone take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. We love you, and we'll talk to you later.